What, what, what am I the Messi of? Or what is Listen, Messi you, the Gatherer? Why does it always be about you? Why do we keep turning around to you? About Come me. on, man. I've, you know I I've love said you. two words in this podcast. <laughs> That's not true at all. <laughs> I, I, literally, if someone does a content analysis of our conversation so far, they wouldn't know that I'm here. I've just sat and smiled at your beautiful face. G'day, welcome to the Surfing the Discourse podcast with me, Jack Treadwell. This is a show where we deep dive into the conversations happening right now and we try to figure out who is talking sense and who is talking nonsense, hopefully emerging with a clear-eyed view of just what the hell is going on. Now today we are going to be looking at an episode of the Joe Rogan podcast, a recent episode in which Joe interviews Gad Sad who is an evolutionary biologist turned anti-woke crusader. And so what I do in this podcast is, well, we play a bunch of clips and I'll analyze the clips, sometimes analyzing specific arguments, sometimes pointing out the patterns in their talking points, especially those that kind of speak to more general currents in the discourse writ large. And sometimes I'll just pick out, as, as is the case in this episode, I'm going to pick out Obvious signs of, uh, well, frankly, nauseating character traits that are evinced by the things said, uh, in particular from Gad Sad. Now, there are going to be a number of themes that will kind of cover off throughout the episode. And one big theme is going to be on heterodox thinkers, uh, because both Joe and Gad kind of snugly fit into the mold of the heterodox thinker. For those who don't know, somebody in the heterodox sphere is typically a political, social commentator who takes views that are kind of outside of the mainstream. Typically, they are kind of right-leaning. They put an emphasis on kind of anti-wokeism. Um, they make much ado about free speech issues and so on. There's a kind of cluster of traits that they all seem to exhibit and a cluster of topics that they find most interesting. So we'll be looking at some of that. Another kind of theme of the podcast is Gad's kind of conversational repertoire. He, he's kind of like a finite state machine that bounces between, I don't know, about four or five different states. One of which is him talking about his, his actual field of expertise, which is evolutionary biology. And he speaks very edifyingly and eloquently on these matters, and that's all very interesting. But then he kind of veers into the topic of wokeism, where he'll sort of complain about something that he's encountered recently on his, probably his social media feed. And then he'll bounce into flattery mode, where he'll say something sycophantic towards Joe Rogan. And then he might bounce over to philosophy, where he'll do what I consider to be some fairly mediocre philosophy. So I've got a few words of feedback uh, to offer about some of his philosophical musings here. Uh, it might be a bit unfair for me to call it mediocre. We'll, we'll kind of see what you think as we go and analyze some of this stuff. And then he'll, I don't know, say something flattering to Joe again. And then he'll say something needy or self-aggrandizing. You know, he seems to have this need to promote himself, which I find a little bit tedious. Um, but then he'll be back to another state in this kind of ping-ponging way. So, yeah, he just sort of bounces around between these five or so different states. 
Now, let's actually dive in. So the first chapter, if you like, of the podcast is going to be centered on this heterodox phenomenon. So we'll, we'll see how Gad and Joe by turns exhibit heterodox behavior, and I'll do a bit of commentary as we go. So we're going to kick things off with a clip of Gad speaking about one of his detractors, Rob Reiner, and we'll see a bit of irony contained in what he says here. Perfect example of that. I hate to say that I'm, I've seen his feed, Meathead from All in the Family, Rob Reiner. Have you ever gone to his... He is so overwhelmingly obsessed with with Trump. Stephen yeah. King is another guy who yeah. uh, fits that description. Stop being mired endlessly in vitriol. I mean, that's all he does. I mean, imagine this guy, how many things he's got to be grateful about. He's a creative guy, yeah. a talented guy, and he spends all day obsessing on issues that ultimately he's got no control over. Yeah, so if you've seen anything of uh, Gad's content, you'll know that that is hilariously rich, talking about being mired in vitriol, uh, yeah, this this is the pot calling the kettle black. So, for instance, in, in this particular episode of the Joe Rogan podcast that he does, uh, he speaks about woke issues endlessly. And so he's the reason he's here on this podcast is to plug his book, which is ostensibly about happiness. But I got a hold of a digital copy of the book and did a keyword search. And guess how many times the word woke is mentioned in a book about happiness? 18 times. 18 times it popped up. So yeah, perhaps a little bit of irony in him talking about Rob Reiner's fixation on certain issues. And particularly his accusing Rob of being vitriolic in his uh, approach to things. Gad Sad is clearly a very smart guy. This is He's genuinely smart. But I think his own vitriol, his own combativeness towards things he sees as woke, kind of blinds him to more reasonable interpretations and leads him to uncritically accept certain things. So, for instance, here's an example of him talking about Charlize Theron, who, well, we'll let Gad tell you. Charlize Theron... Uh, adopts two kids from Africa, two boys, and it turns out statistically that it's perfectly reasonable that both of them are now girls. Have you have you seen that? I saw some meme. I wasn't sure that it was true. Okay. What's what's the most charitable explanation for this, girls? So I don't think it's a charitable explanation, but I think it's the correct one, and I talk about it in the last book. So I talk about Munchausen syndrome by proxy. So Munchausen syndrome is when I fake an illness myself to garner sympathy and empathy. Mm. Munchausen syndrome by proxy is when I harm someone under my care to garner the empathy by proxy. Look at me, the super progressive woman who's got two transgender kids. Right. So it's a very, very diabolically narcissistic. I, I don't pretend to be psychoanalyzing her, but you asked me for my prediction or opinion. I think that's what it is. Yeah, I was trying. Sorry? Uh, I saw this meme go around too. This is where it came from, right? This picture? Yeah. When I'm looking up the story about her adopting kids, yeah. all I'm seeing is that she had adopted one daughter and that in 2019, the other one said that she was not a boy and that she is a daughter also, and so that they're both daughters. So, oh, so one of them is a biological one, girl. One is yeah. a real daughter. And that's why I was trying to find out the actual, I don't know, I'm like digging through the stories, nothing actually says biological anything. Well, know. then I really appreciate, Jules, your uh, 
you're c- careful when you you know at the start you said I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah. So that and so I it think turned out it's not true. That, that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of people listen to you because exactly of that careful thing. I, I, uh, isn't that poetical? Just seeing him get shot down like that. So funny. So yeah, obviously he just uncritically accepted this uh, claim that Charlie Theron has two transgender children just seizes on it um, because it kind of corroborates his narrative and it's kind of something fun or something that gives him an opportunity to poke fun at the uh, the liberals for. Um, but it must be said, good on Joe for showing restraint here and actually trying to be a little bit critical. So yeah, kudos for that. And Gad rightly praises him for it. Uh, it was a, a pretty slick kind of deflection from Gad there. He didn't have to acknowledge how hilariously wrong he'd been shown to be. Um, instead, kind of twists it into praise for Joe, which is more of that uh, brown nosing that I kind of alluded to earlier. So we are going to see more of that. So here's another clip from Gad that kind of speaks to his fixation on wokeness and really helps to drive that point of hypocrisy home. So here he is somehow spinning the example of a serial killer into an indictment of liberals. Now, this is not the type. Now, a progressive will tell you that this guy is like that because something happened in his background that made him that way. He couldn't have been born damaged, right? It's the social constructivist argument. Yeah. We're all born empty slate, and it's only society that either makes us good or bad. Yeah. And therefore, they would want to rehabilitate. And by the way, the, the justice system released him several times when in a real deontological world, that guy would have been executed. By the way, I support the death penalty for guys like that. So I kind of briefly looked into this case that he's talking about. And <clears throat> the reality is that the the guy has been released from prison, from stints in prison, that are related not to murder charges, but to other kind of lesser crimes, certainly still egregious. But um, nobody knew he was a serial killer at, at the point he was being released, obviously. It seems like it's just business as usual for the prison system he sort of had served part of his sentences and was released on parole probably for good behavior and so it's just like a super bizarre reach from uh, gad here like the way that this can be spun into an issue of wokeism right he's painting this like cartoonishly simple picture where you know you have progressives who are kind of soft on serial killers and and they allow them to flourish by being so soft on them and then you have gad on the other hand who wants to see them hanged who has wants no truck with serial killings in society and and you know in stark contrast to the the liberal pansies who would see them all released you know obviously i'm being hyperbolic but it's kind of what the picture that gad is gesturing at suggests so, yeah, uh, it's just another case of him taking something that's totally partisan, uh, non-partisan, sorry, and spinning it into uh, this kind of partisan narrative. Now, another kind of quality that seems to be common to heterodox thinkers is something that's been pointed out on the Decoding the Gurus podcast, which you should definitely check out uh, if you haven't already. And so this is the, the phenomenon of being fixated on kind of personal grievances so they they really focus on their personal detractors and we'll see here that gad is by no means immune to this so here's 
First of all, here's a clip that speaks to his sense of how embattled he is. And note here the hilariously kind of awkward response from Joe. He tries to grope for something to say in response. Uh, but the hatred comes from all forms. I can criticize feminism. I'll get women's group attacking me. If I attack something about transgender issues, I'll get criticized. And so the, the hate is endless. That's a horrible thing to experience. It's a horrible thing to experience, especially from a guy like you that literally fled it. So next we've got a clip of Gad having a perfectly innocent conversation with Joe about his favorite movie of all time, 12 Angry Men. And yet somehow he manages to take this uh, and twist it into a pot shot at one of his detractors. The rest of the movie is how he gets each of the 11 other guys to flip their positions. And so that's why I had watched it in that MBA course, because it demonstrates how, you know, there are techniques you can use to try to persuade people. Of course, today mm. you could almost never do it. I can never convince Rob Reiner of anything. But, you know. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say. Now, another heterodox phenomenon, and this has also been documented by the Decoding the Gurus guys, is how much weight these heterodox people put on the kind of private personalities of other commentators. Like they often seem to argue that any disdain for these people based on their political views is kind of unwarranted uh, on the basis that they are a really nice guy if, or gal if you talk to them in person. So here they are talking about sort of belligerent attitudes that are exhibited towards Tucker Carlson um, from people on the left. Yeah, there, and if you asked him for examples, specific examples of why Tucker Carlson is so horrible, that's where it would get interesting. Yeah. Because some people might be able to say some things they found disagreeable, but most people are just sticking to a narrative. Yeah. There's just this narrative that he is evil incarnate. He is a transphobe or, or right. a, a, whatever it is. He's a he's a Putin stooge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a Putin stooge. There's all these different things, but yeah. they they want to ignore all evidence that he's a lovely guy. <laughs> like and he really is by all accounts. By all accounts, all the people that I know that have had interactions with him say he's a very lovely guy. Now, if you apply the logic of what they're saying to, for instance, Adolf Hitler, I think it becomes clear just how much of a non sequitur it is. Like. Look at all these people getting worked up by Hitler's politics. I bet if they just had a beer with the guy and saw how bloody charming he is, they wouldn't have nearly so many bad things to say about him. It's like you could, these things are separate, right? The How somebody is in person and what their politics they express are. And, and people can rightfully criticize the politics and form a negative opinion of the person based on those politics. And that can be quite, uh, it's quite legitimate to do that, even though they don't know the person personally. Also, in this, they're kind of ignoring the fact that Tucker Carlson is really as guilty as anyone at kind of pushing tribal narratives. The guy's a total firebrand he's he's always saying provocative and partisan things you know he's picking exactly the kind of fights that they're talking about so you know it's kind of like they've walked over to tucker carlson he's like throwing shit at somebody and the guy's throwing shit back and and joe's like pleading with the other guy saying you know pointing at tucker and being like why are you throwing shit at him he's he's such a nice guy meanwhile like tucker's mid mid lob lobbing a big turd <laughs> back at the other guy this is kind of what's going on here it's kind of what they're saying 
So we'll move on to another feature that is common to a lot of these heterodox folks, which is a distrust in our institutions and in our government. And this kind of connects with something I talked about in the last episode with Andrew Tate, the, the idea that there's a sort of family of worldviews, and these are actually very common uh, worldviews that have in common the fact that they view the government or the state as a sort of sinister entity that is in some way working against the interests of the people. And there's a whole variety of conceptions of how this works exactly, although none are particularly detailed. None of the, none get very concrete about how they think it works. It's sort of like usually a, a very blurry-eyed sense. Um, but you might have the idea that there's a cabal of people running the show, you know, financial elites or Jewish people or the, the central bank. Or you might have a view of a deep state, the idea that there's people in positions of power in various government agencies and that they sort of persist through uh, different um, elected governments. Uh, or there's sort of even more apparently reasonable views that there are kind of perverse incentives built into the system, uh, financial incentives and so on, that just cause a kind of systemic corruption. I think I'll do an episode devoted to this, uh, this worldview uh, at one point, a kind of standalone episode, because I think it is definitely worth understanding in detail, like why it exists and whether or not there's a grain of truth to any of it. And so, yeah, it'd be worth getting clear about that. But for now, we're going to focus on Joe Rogan's particular brand of the worldview. So here's a clip of him talking about how he uh, he sees the Roe v. Wade issue, you know, the issue of abortion and other issues kind of circulating in the cultural discourse. And he's going to just question whether that might not be because the state, the sinister state, uh, wants to keep us culturally squabbling. So here's this clip. And there's all these different things that are bounced back around, these, these societal issues that keep getting bounced back around, where you go like, what? what are, why aren't these resolved? Like the Roe v. Wade one, and now they're talking about uh, gay marriage, like doing the same thing with gay marriage. Like, why do you want to do this? Uh, are you doing this because you just want people to squabble about shit? Because that's what it seems like. Because that's the only reason why you would ha have, like, Supreme Court conversations about gay marriage in 2023. So if yeah. that's still, and if people even want to bring it up for debate, like, is that real? Or is this one of those things that keeps us culturally squabbling? So... This kind of illustrates a general feature, I think, that uh, people who hold the sinister state worldview uh, exhibit, which is an apparent allergy to details, to actually getting concrete about what they're claiming. You know, they like to hover above all of the detail at this sort of abstract and blurry level in which they can kind of make the case. But like, this is a perfect example of where if you knew the details, uh, it would be much harder to argue that this was like a state orchestrated affair, right? So what actually happened, for example, with the, the Roe v. Wade situation? Okay, so for a bit of context, um, there had been a previous ruling by the Supreme Court that abortion was protected by the Constitution. There are a couple of lines in the Constitution that they cite um, talking about how the state cannot interfere with the liberty of a person. And they interpret that as meaning that uh, is extending to the right to abortion. Now, legal scholars have long recognized that this was a fairly shaky legal ruling, which could quite easily have gone the other way. That, that is, there a justifiable legal 
sort of technical grounds on which they could have ruled that the Constitution didn't protect uh, the right to abortion. Now, at the time of that ruling, the Supreme Court was comprised of a majority of liberal justices, and that helps to explain why they came to that conclusion. But in recent years, there's been a shift in the makeup of the Supreme Court, which is now a conservative majority. So the time is ripe for a challenge to the Roe v. Wade decision. And so enter a Christian conservative group known as the Alliance Defending Freedom, or ADF. And so they knew this was the case, and what they wanted to do was to instigate a legal battle, which they hoped would wind its way up to the Supreme Court, where this decision could be ruled upon again. And so that's exactly what they did. They teamed up with the legislators in, I think, the state of Mississippi, and they signed into law, uh, into state law, some restrictions on abortions, which they hoped would provoke a legal challenge, and that's exactly what it did. And so this is how the situation played out. Now, I'm by no means well-versed in this stuff. I know the gist of it, the stuff that I just laid out. But it's pretty clear from a fairly cursory look into the stuff that, you know, Joe's idea that this was somehow a top-down initiative to foster discord in society and get us squabbling, it just doesn't survive contact, I think, with the details of the actual case. So were Joe to, to study up on exactly how this came about, I think it just wouldn't leave room for this kind of conspiratorial theorizing. So that's a, a general feature that we see with this kind of sinister state worldview, I've found, is that it only works when you kind of keep things nebulous, when your reasoning is kind of woolly and you don't get too detailed. So here's another example of exactly this kind of woolly and sort of scattershot thinking uh, from Joe. Like, how much corruption is there? Yeah. Like, how much? What do you? Who's? How much money are you guys making? How's? Yeah. Where's this money coming from? There's so much corruption that's readily available that once you start opening the door to calling someone a monster, then everyone gets to look at you and go, "Hey, yeah. but what about you guys? Like, what are you doing? What? What about? What about drone bombings? Look at. Like, right. Let's talk about some real problems. So, what, what about the fentanyl crisis? Like, what about? You know, what about the 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 borders where like criminals are coming through like how many are being sent back what's the numbers yeah what's the numbers i mean a lot of them are good people that just want to find a better way to live so yeah he's sort of lumping in all of these th things in the context of government corruption so what he, he said drone bombings the fentanyl crisis um sort of border leakage issues uh, it's not clear at all how this stuff is supposed to indicate government corruption like okay sure you could make the case that there's government incompetence or you know at least these situations aren't being handled as well as you like but where's the corruption exactly like it just demonstrates that all of this stuff just kind of gets loosely lumped in together in this disorganized sort of jumble and uh, it's supposed to paint a kind of impression of the government as corrupt somehow but there's no precision in it there's no real argument so here's another clip of joe talking about how governments really just are in it to give themselves more power so take a look at this and also for sure governments that are really good at crafting laws that allow them to gain power and they've done that with the 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 all the the bills that they passed after 9-11, you know, the Patriot Act, yeah. Patriot Act 2, the NDAA, yeah. all that crazy shit. They, 
whenever something happens, they find new ways to control yeah. and they do it because it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to pass laws that people were reluctant to pass before. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. It happens all the time. It's normal. That's their job. That's what they do. What they do is they're, they're right. in control. They're in power. Like that's the game that they're playing. So I just want to point out uh, a bit of myopia here that is required to make this argument here. So, so Joe's sort of uh, claiming that the government has passed these laws in order to give themselves more power, uh, it seems, for power's sake. But you also need to grapple with the fact that there are plenty of laws which restrict the government's powers, laws which kind of promote transparency and accountability in government. Uh, there's, there's heaps of examples of this. So there's like the Freedom of Information Act, which you know gives the public the right to demand information or to have information released from government agencies. There's laws which require any government officials to disclose their previous financial history and employment history so as to prevent kind of conflicts of interest. There's whistleblower uh, protection laws which protect people who expose government malfeasance and corruption um, and and heaps more like this. Now, just the general idea, the general point that I'm making here is that you kind of need to fold all of this stuff into your analysis, right? Like you have to be able to make sense of why it is that all this stuff exists alongside these laws that purportedly are designed to give the government more untrammeled power. So yeah, I just think more work needs to be done to make the case that Joe is trying to make. Uh, and again, this just speaks to the simplicity of this general kind of worldview that I see. Uh, I want to see a, a strong case made that's detailed about how it works and that can grapple with the fact that you know these other laws exist that do promote transparency and accountability. So we've got another clip here which kind of gestures at Joe's explanation for what's going on here. He, he seems to have this view that people in government or people generally just want power for the sake of power and that if you give them the chance to exercise power, then they will do so for, for its own sake, essentially. I'm sure there's going to be a thousand doctoral dissertations written about the, the failure of public policy without it necessarily being a whole evil orchestrated thing that's my I think, sense i think there's certainly a lot of that and then there's certainly a lot of people that um never really had the power to dictate what people can and can't do before yeah. Yeah. like mayors and and governors they really didn't have the, the ability yeah. to shut down businesses before yeah. and i think something there's something creepy and weird about having that ability yeah. and that people especially if their income doesn't change at all yeah they did not seem to have a problem doing unscientific things that stop people from making money like shutting down outdoor dining that didn't make any sense and yeah. they did it and they did it for optics yeah and the fact that 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 kind of stuff can happen like it's when you when you get it, it gets real strange when people have power to do things because some people are just going to start doing those things so this is an idea that you commonly hear, and it's kind of offered up as an explanation for why these people in positions of power do what they do. And it's this idea that there's something in our psychology that causes us to want to wield authority over people when we have the opportunity to do so. Now, it's important to acknowledge that there is, in fact, a, a deep psychological drive for status, and so a drive to get oneself into a position of power kind of makes perfect sense. 
but but actually like wielding power especially from behind the scenes right like wielding control over people this just doesn't strike me as psychologically plausible especially when as it's sort of claimed by joe here that this is a kind of universal feature of human psychology it doesn't make evolutionary sense to me uh, i wish gad sand had kind of piped up here to give an analysis but yeah, that just doesn't seem plausible. It doesn't seem plausible from a kind of intuitive sense of human psychology. Like maybe it applies to very pathological people like psychopaths, for example. So sure, if that's your claim that the people who end up in positions of power do have this kind of aberrant psychological makeup that leads them to want to wield power over people for to get some kind of pleasure out of it, I don't know. That is at least more plausible to me and, and certainly more work would need to be done to disprove that. But um, yeah, if your claim is that this is a general feature of ordinary human psychology, then I don't buy that. And that does seem to be what Joe is claiming here. But anyway, moving on. Uh, so another feature of the heterodox people is that they kind of inhabit a, an alternative sphere even when it comes to scientific views. So here's Joe expressing his opinion about the lab leak hypothesis, uh, which, which has recently become such a major heterodox talking point. So I think you could talk about a lab leak theory now. Yeah. Because it's kind of established science. Mm -hmm. And there's more evidence that points to the fact that it leaked from a lab than there's, there's almost no evidence of natural spillover. There's yeah. also evidence of manipulation. So did you catch the fact that he said there is virtually no evidence for the natural origins hypothesis. That is just not true in the slightest. And so you'd really have to be in a real information silo to think that that's the case. Now, I'm not going litig to litigate the issue here, but I'll just point you in the direction of a Decoding the Gurus episode. I think it's called The Lab Leak. And so there you can hear from actual specialists, actual experts in the relevant uh, disciplines like virology, and just hear what they have to say about the evidence and the, the, the case uh, for the natural origins view, which turns out to be quite plausible, which is a far cry from there being no evidence to support it, as Joe claims. All right, so let me get into something positive. So as I mentioned in the beginning, Gad is, you can kind of model Gad's conversational behavior like a finite state machine. That is, he sort of bounce between, bounces between a, a bunch of different states. And one of those states is him acting as an evolutionary biologist. And there he sort of presents genuinely interesting scientific ideas. And he does so very eloquently. He does so in, a, in an accessible, like very articulate manner. And that's enjoyable to hear. And I wish there was more of that. But unfortunately, in this entire three-hour interview with Joe, there's only a couple of examples of this. Um, but here is one. Well, in, in, in my first book ever, 2007, the Evolutionary Basic Consumption, I talk about studies, not my studies, I'm, I was citing other works, that looked at what happens to the testosterone levels of fans as a function of whether their team wins or loses. Of course, How do you test that? Well, it's, well, it's been tested. Uh, you just take salivary assays of fans as their team is winning oh, or losing. you can get the testosterone yeah. levels from that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, interesting. Yeah, and so wow. now what? It's not surprising, as you would know as a, right. as a fighter, that if you and I fight and you defeat me, your testosterone level goes up, my testosterone level goes down. Like a video game. Like a video game. Uh, except what's happening here 
is that there is a vicarious endocrinological response. The fans are having the same increases in their testosterone levels or decreases as a function of their team winning or not. Uh. That's quite extraordinary. And that shows you why it, we become so bonded to our favorite players and so on. We are really going through this battle with them. So, yeah, I think interesting, edifying scientific ideas. It would be great if uh, Gad did more of this. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of his time is occupied with talking about woke stuff. Okay, so another one of his states I've found is him doing mediocre philosophy. And that might be a bit unfair. You can judge for yourself. But we'll just look at some of his philosophical ideas and, and see if they have any merit. So here he is first up talking about this idea of the golden mean. You used to think that if you drank a lot of coffee, you would get dehydrated, but there's a certain amount of hydration you're actually getting from drinking coffee too. So it's like kind of complicated. So that he, perfect segue into one of the chapters of the book. I talk about everything in moderation, mm -hmm. which of course Aristotle already talked about the golden mean. You know, if a soldier is too cowardly it's not good if he's too reckless he's going to die and right. so like most things the sweet spot is in the middle and so in that chapter i go through a bewildering number of phenomena all of which adhere to that inverted u too little not good too much is not good and and the ideal point is in the middle exercise intensity inverted u alcohol consumption inverted u coffee mm -hmm. consumption inverted u fish consumption inverted u and so i thought that was a really cool chapter to cover because it's arguably the most universal law that we can find. So many things adhere to that inverted U. And I think we had discussed this last time that I was on the show. The ancient Greeks were already aware of it. I mean, mm. Aristotle in his Nicomachean ethics talks exactly. I mean, he doesn't call it the inverted U. He calls it the golden mean. And so to our earlier conversation, the last time I was here in, in going through the research for this book, the amount of insights I found from Seneca, Epictetus, Aristotle, Marcus Aurelius was just breathtaking. It was unbelievable. So I guess the point that I want to make here is that, and this is just more of a bugbear of mine, it's certainly not like a view I've encountered elsewhere, but the golden mean just seems to me to be like a totally trivial thing. Like there's nothing profound about it. He claims that it's this deep principle but it just seems like totally uninteresting to me. So as he said, it applies to good things, uh, i.e. things that humans commonly do or consume, you know, behaviors and things like that, maybe personality traits. And so anything that is good, obviously it's better to do some of it than none of it, generally speaking, right? So that's trivial. But it's also the case that pretty much anything that one can do, any behavior that one can exhibit or any, uh, any kind of substance one can consume, of course there's going to be a point at which you do too much of it. Like whether or not that's just because it's taking up all your time or because it leads to some deleterious or adverse reaction in the body if we're talking about something that you're consuming. Even water, that's the case with water. If you drink too much water, you can die. So it's just trivially the case that there's going to be a point at which you can have too much of something. And so the implication is that somewhere between doing none of a thing and doing too much of the thing, there's a point at which like you're doing the right amount of the thing. And that's the golden mean. Um, like, yeah, it, it just doesn't strike me as a very deep principle. I guess one test to see whether something is in fact like a useful deep principle is that, so you derive it 
from a few uh, from a handful of examples say so talking about coffee talking about uh courage you know there's a few examples and you can say look here's this general principle that i can derive from these cases that there is a a point at which there is a the right amount of this thing and that point comes after zero and comes before too much so you've got this principle that you've derived from these few examples can you then apply it to other cases? Can it then inform you about how you should behave you know, outside of these cases that you've already established? And it just seems like, not really, like, okay, so I've got this principle now, this golden mean principle, and I'm considering, like, how much exercise should I do? Well, uh, this principle is telling me that, uh, you know, some exercise is probably better than none, and that there is a point of too much exercise. So, Okay, I'll try to find the point at which, uh, you know, between those two extremes. But, you know, common sense tells you this is the case. And your body tells you this is the case when it starts to get too painful, the exercise. It tells you to, to slow down, ease back. So, yeah, I just, I don't know, let me know what you think. To me, it seems totally trivial and not really worth our time of day. But, but let me know if I've missed something glaring here, because uh, I'd really genuinely like to know. Uh, okay, so here is another clip of Gad. This time he's going to talk about a lesson that he learned about happiness. I've actually had a guy on my show, arguably the, 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 the most remarkable story I've ever heard on my show, and I discuss it actually in, in my current book on happiness, talking about gratitude. He spent 29 years in prison for a murder that he was eventually exonerated of. On the show, I asked him, how is it that you go about your life you you're so put together you're not full of vengefulness you don't want to destroy the world you must be buddha you're a much better man than i am and his answer really speaks to the mindset of being a happy person and having gratitude he said well i have a sister who's been bedridden with cerebral palsy for much of her life and yet she manages to smile and be happy so i don't really have much to complain about so here's a guy who who has had three decades stolen from him and yet he still had the grace and dignity i think we can all learn a lot from that lesson Mm. so i'm kind of confused here the lesson seems to be that when we feel upset or depressed because of our life circumstances say we should reflect on the fact that somebody is worse off than us and that some of these people who are worse off than us, they're doing all right psychologically, so therefore we should too. But I want to know, what I want to know is, what exactly is the sister's strategy in the story that Gad talked about? Why didn't he talk to the sister and ask how she was maintaining an optimistic attitude throughout her ordeals? Like, there's the secret right there, but you've missed it, Gad. You missed your opportunity. Go and ask her. Um, that seems like she's got. She must have a more robust strategy there for for coping. Uh, another problem with Gad's idea here is that you know maybe the people that um, maybe the sister in this case is just constituted differently, and so she just has by nature a more uh, optimistic attitude towards things. So that wouldn't very that wouldn't be of much help to you if you you know you're trying to use these people as a model of how you should behave, but you just don't have the same stuff as them. So it might not necessarily work. Um, I don't know. Maybe this, this is a bit nitpicky of me pulling this stuff up. But but yeah, uh, Gad had a lot of time to think about this stuff. He put it in his book. So I, I feel like there was more work to be done there. Anyway, here is another clip. This isn't really so much uh, philosophy. I suppose it's, it's a kind of ethos that Gad has regarding uh, parenting strategies. So take a look at this. My approach to parenting has been 
I don't trust anyone with my children. Precisely because the one who is going to commit those infractions is not someone that has, you know, hidden horns that you can see. Right. It is your uncle. It is grandpa. It is the really sweet neighbor. Ugh. It is the person. And so, and I've actually had, uh, not heated, but, you know, disagreements with my wife where she thought I was being too paranoid about this. And my answer is, my job is to always err on the side of safety. So there's no sleepovers, there's no sleepaway camp, because there is going to be this this the counselor there who is a pig, and then I would have miserably failed in my job. And so my job, while you are under my protection, is to make sure that I never put you in a position where this could happen. What okay, a couple of points. First of all, what a paranoid worldview to have being suspicious of grandpa. I mean, God. So if grandpa offered to take your child for a walk through the park, you'd be like, mm, sorry, grandpa. I think you, there's a chance you might be a raper. So I'm not going to let you spend any time alone with my daughter. And also another point is that where's the consideration of the kind of flourishing of Gad's daughter here? Like, Clearly, there's a cost to being this militant about who your daughter can and can't hang around with and what she can and can't do. Like if all of her friends are having a sleepover or something and you're forcing her to miss out on it, like you're really dampening her enjoyment of life, I think. And that can be quite a significant problem. So anyway, people can have different views about that, but I just think it's a an overly paranoid and oppressive way of parenting so that's just my two cents there uh okay so we've got another kind of philosophical claim of gad's here that we'll dig into so here is joe uh talking about free speech and how that's come under siege in recent years and then we'll have gad's explanation for what's going on here there's a battle a true battle in 2023 over censorship as a kid growing up, there was no arguments against freedom of speech in America. So can I offer a philosophical explanation for why I think this is happening? Sure. Uh, so in, in my last book, In the Parasitic Mind, I talk about two ethical systems, deontological ethics and consequentialist ethics. Deontological ethics is an absolute statement. For example, if I say it is never okay to lie, that is a deontological statement. If I say it is okay to lie to spare someone's feelings. So the, the example that I often give is if your spouse asks you, do I look fat in those jeans, then put on your consequentialist hat really quickly. <laughs> and then, right? So for most things, most, right. most of us are going to be consequentialists. But when it comes to certain fundamental principles that define, say, Western values, those have to be deontological. Yeah. But now it has become perfectly okay when, it, when talking about freedom of speech to Tackle it from a consequentialist perspective. Don't criticize Islam because that means you're hurting people's feelings. Therefore, shut your mouth. Right? Mm. No, you can criticize Islam. You can criticize Judaism. You can criticize evolution. You could do whatever. You, there is no but. Right? And I think if we can ever return to understanding the distinction between deontological and consequentialist, I think we'll be back on the right track. So, what do you think? Is Gad's hand? correct in his hypothesis here that there has been this shift from a deontological stance to a consequentialist stance? Well, first of all, what about the, the starting premise of their discussion here, which is that there has been this erosion of free speech lately? What are they referring to? I think uh, what, what it must be is, is this phenomenon of 
what we can call social silencing, which does seem to be a real phenomenon, and it does seem to have picked up perhaps in recent years, or at least the perception that that it is a thing has increased, as a lot of polls seem to show. So what this is, is uh, when people express certain views that are seen as objectionable by some, some subset of society, they might be shamed or shunned, and they might be kicked off certain social media platforms, and this kind of thing. So is it really the case that there has been this shift away from deontological attitudes in the past? Well, one thing to get clear about is is exactly what he means here by a deontological view, because there's a couple of possibilities as I see it. So deontological views in philosophy are kind of a formal ethical framework that one derives at a kind of intellectual philosophical level and then applies sort of as a sort of principle to guide behavior. But then there's also the idea of deontological views as kind of gut feelings about what one should and shouldn't do. And so this is like a deep psychological, emotional form of deontological view. And this latter one is what Gad is talking about, and I've verified this by looking into some of his past writings on the matter. Um, So this derives from a kind of evolutionary understanding of deontology, where, for example, the biologist E.O. Wilson had explained deontology as being a result of these gut feelings sort of connected to these sort of brute emotions that humans have. And typically... You know, we can say that these are conditioned by our society, right? These sort of norms are conditioned into us. And we might feel that certain norms and rules absolutely cannot be violated. To do so would be unthinkable. Um, Murdering somebody would be a possible modern example of this. So the question then becomes, was it the case in the past that humans had this this deep sense that we should allow all kinds of free speech, that we should be absolutist about this, that to shut somebody down was the most egregious breach of some fundamental principle. And I'm just kind of skeptical about that. I don't think that's ever been the case. Like, why would it? So does that apply, for example, at the the dinner table, if you're having like a family dinner, say, you know, say in the, I don't know, the 1970s before this shift happened that Gad is talking about. Like if one of your aunties started talking about politics and going on and on about it and somebody was like, hey, you know, Sheila, can you can you tone that down a bit? We're just trying to like eat here. We're trying to have a pleasant dinner and you keep bringing this political discussion into it. You know, would this provoke in everybody this like deep feeling of unease? Like, oh, no, 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 we can't shut down this conversation. Like free speech needs to flourish. Um, what like is this realistic like I suppose that's what this would have to be right because uh, what is what Gad's saying is that we were deontological about free speech so what does that mean I guess it means that that we're deontological about letting everybody say what they need to say now I think maybe what's happening here is that Gad is conflating a couple of things here not just the two different forms of deontological view i.e emotional versus intellectual But he's also conflating the kind of social arena of free speech versus the political and legal arena. Now, in the legal arena, it is very common for people to have this intellectual deontological uh, principle regarding free speech. That is, you know, in America, for example, the First Amendment, which guarantees free speech, is 
inviolable. It is sacrosanct and never to come under threat. And I, I don't feel like people are questioning the the First Amendment. I, I, there might be some fringe characters doing this, which could be what they're referring to, but that would hardly be a sign of the kind of shift that Gad is talking about. So, okay, the upshot of all this, I just think that here... There's a lot of things being conflated. Gant isn't being at all precise in his argument. He's got this kind of philosophical idea. It sounds sort of superficially plausible. It certainly sounds like cle- it sounds very clever and erudite and, and well done, Gad, for uh, diagnosing the situation so aptly. But no, the, the reality is this is just, uh, again, mediocre philosophy. So now we have a clip from Gad continuing that conversation. Yeah. Right. And so as to your point, until very recently, we all agreed that presumption of innocence was a deontological statement that, that can't have a but associated. Right. To it. You can't right. say I believe in presumption of innocence, but not for Brett Kavanaugh. Right. I right, believe right. in freedom of speech, but not for Donald Trump. And once again, I think it's clear that he's conflating the kind of intellectual deontology with the emotional deontology so people would still uphold the presumption of innocence principle in a legal context so as a a, a sacrosanct legal doctrine it's still safe but what he's alluding to here is people's attitude towards brett kavanaugh for example people jumping to conclusions perhaps about his wrongdoing and this is totally consistent with normal human psychology, which, by the way, is not and never has been deontological about presumption of innocence outside of a legal setting, right? So you catch somebody with their hand in the cookie jar. You don't then have this principle that you need to uphold about holding them innocent until you can prove beyond doubt that they're guilty of stealing from the, the cookie jar. You know, people just don't act like this. So none of this is corroborating his idea here that there's been some shift away from a deontological attitude to a consequentialist attitude. So in conclusion, whatever is happening to perhaps cause an increase in this social silencing phenomenon, it isn't what Gad says it is. Or at least, you know, if he if you're gonna make that case, you need to do so without conflating all these different things, you know, the legal context versus the social context, the intellectual deontological principle versus the emotional one. Gad's just not being very clear here about any of this stuff. And so I think the point just flops as a philosophical or even scientific argument here, because I suppose it's empirical to some degree, the claim that he's making. All right. So here's him continuing this discussion. So here he's going to be talking about, I suspect it's Sam Harris that he's uh, referring to here as violating this deontological principle. And so one of the reasons why I've gotten into a beef with someone that we both know well is because that person has repeatedly violated what he should know better, which is that deontological principles by definition should never have the but qualifier. But now keep in mind this indictment of Sam Harris or whoever he's referring to uh, for not being absolutist about free speech. And listen to this next clip in which Gad is going to betray some serious hypocrisy. This is from earlier in the podcast. Well, I remember I I had been contacted by, I don't know if you've had him on the show. Do you know who Matt Ridley is? He wrote a book a few years ago with a co-author, I can't remember her name, where they were arguing for the lab leak theory. Mm. And, And when he had 
when his people had reached out to me to come on the show, I, I very frankly said, look, I'm, I'm someone who very much speaks my mind. I don't care. But let's be pragmatic about this. If you come on my show, it's going to be taken down. I was being pragmatic and saying, look, we're just going to waste our time. First of all, it's not going to appear. They're right. going to take it down. They're probably going to put a strike on my channel, if right. not remove my channel. And there is a real problem with that. And so we ended up never doing the show. But just the fact that they can get to me, someone who really defines his identity as being irreverent and I just do whatever I want, right. yet they still found a way to get me to modulate my behavior, to yes. think about it. Therefore, they won against me. So much for being an absolutist and being totally deontological about free speech. So I think what he was referring to with Sam Harris was a case of you know, Sam Harris arguing that there were pragmatic reasons for restricting or censoring information. So however you feel about that case, it's certainly clear that Gad is doing kind of the same thing, right? He's, in this case, limiting the reach of certain commentators for pragmatic reasons. So he is kind of stepping on the toes of free speech here. And so I just thought that was a good bit of hypocrisy to point out. And now while we're on the topic of hypocrisy, uh, this is a good segue into a discussion of Gad's uh, less than savory character traits, which he lays bare in this particular interview and in others that I've seen from him. So first of all, uh, here is one example of him being sycophantic towards Joe. It's hard to be that. It's hard to be Michael Jordan. He deserves all that money. It's fucking impossible to be. Only one guy pulled it off. And you deserve all the money you make, my no, friend. Let's not. Let's leave me out of this. <laughs> Ugh. It was like, it didn't follow very naturally either. It was just like an obvious excuse to, to blow smoke. And speaking of blowing smoke, here's another one. Like, well, I think, and again, to not to blow smoke up your behind, but uh, one of the things that I think people appreciate about you is that you do change your opinion in light of new evidence. And also, don't forget about earlier in the podcast where he point about Charlize Theron fell hilariously flat and then he uh, twisted that into a, a, an excuse to praise Joe Rogan some more. So yeah, there's that. And and this runs through all of the podcasts that you see with Joe, him on Joe Rogan. So this is not exclusive. This is not unique to this particular episode. And neither is another feature that he betrays here. And that is being needy and and being self-aggrandizing so here is a clip of one example of that but most of my friends most of my close friends do risky shit mm. either they they do martial arts or they do stand-up comedy or they do something they do how some... about intellectual risk taking yeah well you do those you do those <laughs> things for sure and now i bring to you the best clip of the entire show and this is a hilariously awkward exchange that happens between Gad and Joe after Gad tries again to insert one of his needy comments and try to be recognized as a great man. <laughs> and Joe is not having a bar of it this time. This is after it's happened a couple of times. So Joe calls him out for it, rightfully. And then Gad gets all defensive and uh, chaos ensues. So listen to this. Yeah. Jamie knows how to fucking he's, load uh, him up. He's the all-time greatest uh, truth checker. Well, he's the goat of podcast producers for he's sure. He's the goat. Everybody of else, he's the messy of podcast. One hundred percent. But there's no Ronaldo out there. 
So he's what, what, what am I the messy of? Or what is Listen, messy what you, the God of? Why does it have to always over? be about you? Why do we keep turning around to you? About Come me. On, man. I've, you know I I've love said you. two words in this podcast. <laughs> That's not true at all. <laughs> I've, I've, literally, if someone does you. a content analysis of our conversation so far, they wouldn't know that I'm here. I've just sat and smiled at your beautiful face. Oh, sweetie. <laughs> that can't be true. No, I'm- I can just look at the the words I'm seeing on my recording. It's like 50-50 in the last no, two minutes. No, it is not 50-50. <laughs> How dare okay. you? How, How dare, dare you, you, sir? You got a little testy there. No, I got gotcha. you. Not at all. <laughs> I'm just having fun. Uh, so what else is up? What's going on? In the, what's going on? In- I don't know, man. I'm more... Okay. So I think on that note, we're going to start to wrap things up. Um, if you've made it this far in the show, I thank you for listening, and hopefully it was of some interest to you. Leave us a comment, leave some feedback, if you please. I would very much appreciate any kind of feedback, good or bad. Love to hear from you. Um, so wherever you're listening to this, just pop a, a little comment down if you can, and I will be sure to reply to you. All right. Thank you for listening. This has been Surfing the Discourse with Jack Treadwell. And hopefully I'll see you next time.